Well, after today, no one will ever accuse me of deviating from the Baptist tradition. Because here it is, the third sermon that I've officially delivered to this budding congregation, and already I'm delivering a message of God's judgment and eternal punishment. So I am sticking with the whole hellfire and brimstone thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're hoping for a feel-good message, I'm sorry, but um, I just want you to know uh, it, it's not as though I particularly enjoy this. You know, it's not as though I'm one of those guys that gets off in, in uh, preaching the wrath of God. I'm not a screamer, a shouter, a stomper, a swearer. That's just not me. In fact, when I read this text, I am convicted. And it's important for us, I think, to hear this message. Though it's not comfortable, it's necessary. Because it's God's message. You know, like Jude, we live in a day of false teachers who question the validity of biblical age-old truths. And this message today is God's truth. Therefore, it's got to be our truth. Our truth to affirm, to uphold, to preach, and to appreciate. And so, like, like Jim said, we've, we've been doing our core team development, but every fourth week we stop and we just have this worship service. And it's in that time that I have committed to preaching through the book of Jude. And so four weeks ago, we looked at Jude 1 through 4. And I don't know if you remember what was happening. Jude the half-brother of Jesus and, and a leader in the early church um, was affirming the marvelous blessing that we have through Jesus Christ. He told us that we have been set apart for humble service, that we have been called by God, and we are His beloved, and that we are kept for Jesus Christ. He told, tells us that we are the recipients of God's abounding grace, mercy, peace, and love. But then Jude turns and he tells us that this blessing of faith has a responsibility. We are to contend for the faith. This contention, it needs to be timely, it needs to be pastoral, but it needs to be immediate. And we need to address those who are false teachers, who pervert the truth, the once-for-all faith that was delivered to the saints. These ungodly teachers, these, these ungodly people have crept into the church, and because they've relied upon their visions, they have tried to hold themselves up as spiritual authorities. Uh, they taught cheap grace, that God's grace would cover our sins regardless of how we lived or what we did. It didn't matter. They were, they were licentious in that regard. And they tried to get others to follow them in the same immoral practices that they were doing. And in effect, they denied the only Master of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that you, if you are aware at all in what's happening outside these doors, we know that there are people who are happy to convince you of the safety and security of your spiritual condition, and yet encourage you in immorality and loose living. We live in a day of license. Where people want God without rules, without responsibilities, without obligations. They want Christianity without commitment. They want the benefits of Christ and salvation, but without the cost of discipleship. 
you know, if, even if you read secular news, there are all sorts of articles that have been reporting on today's American spirituality. But the fastest growing group in America are those who consider them, themselves spiritual. They believe in God, in quotations, but they are not affiliated with any religious group, any organization, any church. They want to pick and choose their spirituality. A little bit from here, and a little bit from there. Well, I'll take a little bit from the Bible, I'll take a little bit from the Quran, I'll take a little bit from, you know, Sun Moon's Divine Principle, it doesn't matter, and I'm just going to con- con- like, bring it all together in some big, sort of, it's like a salad bar style Christianity. It's really what it's like. You create your own. They want spirituality without the commitment. They don't want to be bound by rules and obligations, doctrines, teachings. They want to be able to put it together themselves. They want spirituality without the constraint of commitment. We know this is the case. We've seen this is the case. That may be your God, but that's not my God. That may be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. I believe this part of the Bible, but I don't believe that part of the Bible. Because that makes God sound mean. This is ever-present today. And Jude is speaking precisely to this issue in this little letter. So there are three things that I want you to see that Jude teaches us from this new book. And the first is that God will deal with the ungodly no matter how spiritual they seem. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude says, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. I'm not telling you anything new. You already know this. God's Word has told you this. The apostles have told you this. Other Christians have told you this. And I have told you this. This is not a new teaching. This is an old teaching. This is the once for all faith that has been delivered to the saints. And I'm just delivering it again. Unlike the false teachers who are trying to tell you something new. I'm telling you an old truth. You know, you know that God will punish the ungodly. You know that God's grace does not give us license to sin. Instead, it gives us strength to turn from our sin and to follow Christ. (coughs) So don't be deceived. Do not be fooled by those who pervert the gospel, who do not live in accordance with godliness. We hear this elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? I mean, an example that comes to mind is, as Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 3-4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Jude's saying the same thing here. These guys, they pretend to be spiritual, but they don't know what they're talking about. And you know the truth. Jude then gives us 
three Old Testament parallels which serve as an example of how God will deal with ungodly people. And these examples that he, he gives us, they're examples of recipients of God's immense blessing. I mean, it, it's amazing to see all that God gave to them. Yet, yet they did not honor God or give Him thanks. But like Paul said, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The first example he gives are the Israelites. I mean, you guys remember the story. These guys were slaves in Egypt. They had been for 400 years. They cried out to God, and God committed to rescuing them. He committed to delivering them from their slavery. And in the process, they saw firsthand, as, as God sent the plagues upon the Egyptians, they cowered under their doorposts as the angel of death passed over them and took the lives of the firstborn in Egypt who were not covered by the blood of the Lamb. They passed safely through the Red Sea. They were led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and fire. They were there as God descended upon the holy mountain. They saw the smoke. They saw the lightning. They felt the earth shake. And they were the recipients of God's law so that they might know how to live in holiness before Him. They received immense blessing. But what does Jude say happened? They were destroyed. And why? Because they failed to believe. Their unbelief led to their ruin. The second example he gave uh, was the angels who had rebelled against God. They lived in the presence of the glory of God. I mean, could you even imagine this? They, they saw God's glory. And not only that, but God gave them positions of authority that they were able to rule over certain areas that God had deemed appropriate for them. Yet that wasn't enough for them. It wasn't enough to be in God's presence. It wasn't enough to receive certain authority from Him, but they rejected Him. And in their pride, they rebelled against God. They rejected His authority. And so He cast them out of heaven. And as Jude says, kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of his judgment. The third example was Sodom and Gomorrah in the surrounding cities. And we often don't think about how blessed they were by God. But do you remember uh, in, Gen in Genesis 13.10, you know, Abraham and Lot... Their, um, their herds were so large that their herdsmen started fighting against one another. And so they go up on the mountain and they make this pact. And Abraham says to Lot, you pick out any land that you want to go to. All right? It's yours to pick. And you go that direction, I'll go in the opposite direction so that we might stay at peace. And, and Lot looks down over the Jordan Valley and it is lush. I mean, it is described as well-watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. This place is so fertile that the only way that they can describe it is like, they, it's just like God's paradise. It's like the garden of Eden. This is how lush, how fertile this is. And so the people who live there, obviously, would, would receive the bounty. They would become rich off of the land because it was so fertile. But rather than giving thanks, the people of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, they gave themselves over to indulgence, especially sexual desire, homosexual um, behavior. 
that they, they were consumed by the pride of prosperity in living in excess, and they neglected the poor and needy. Each of them had received, each of these three examples had received abundant blessing from God. Yet in their pride, in their rebellion, in their immorality, and in their unbelief, they rejected God. Each of them started well, but they didn't run well, and they certainly didn't end well. Now Jude vividly and emphatically reminds us that God judged them all. And like these three Old Testament examples, God will deal with the ungodly. Like these Israelite angels and the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, these false teachers may have started well, but they failed to run well. They failed to endure. And in verses 8 through 10, Jude tells us this, that these, what led these false teachers astray. Yet in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Jude says that these false teachers were relying on their dreams. And it was these visions that led them to consider themselves spiritual authorities. They're like, this has to be from God. I must be somebody special. And so now I'm going to tell you all about it. The problem is, their teaching was contrary to the word of God. They were spiritual, all right, but apart from godliness. Their visions that they saw, led them to defile the flesh. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality and were caught up in immorality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude also said that they rejected authority. This could mean that they rejected the authority of the church or maybe the authority that God had given to the angels because they were blaspheming them. Um, but the reality is, any structure of authority that God put in place, if it is not sinful, we have no right to reject it. And when we do, we are rejecting God. So ultimately, these guys are rejecting the Lordship of Christ. Like the fallen angels, they rebelled against the authority of God and pridefully attempted to position themselves as authorities. And third, Jude says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. They speak words of condemnation against angels and celestial powers. Now we don't know exactly why this is. There are a few options there. One, in their hatred of the law. I mean, they desire to live licentiously, to do what they please. In their hatred of the law, they hate the angels because the angels were the intermediaries of the law. It was through the angels that God gave them. So that could be one possibility. It could also be that they claim that demons, that evil angels, fallen angels, could not hurt any of those who belong to God. That they had some sort of authority over them. Well, Jesus was able to boss around these demons. Therefore, I have the ability to boss around these demons. And so they underestimate the power of evil at work, but they also overestimate their own authority. So that could be another option. Or, there was a tradition in Judaism that the angels were the ones that are responsible for evil. When the angels fell from heaven... 
That is what kind of created evil, and they gave it to man. So evil is not does not come from man. It's not it's not an outworking of the the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Rather, it's because of these angels. And so they're saying, you know, the reason why life stings for the life is the way it is, or why there's evil in the world, is because of these angels. So let's get mad at them. Let's condemn them. Let's hate them. So that that may be another option. Regardless. Jude's ultimate point is that these folks are overstepping their bounds. They're doing what they ought not. They claim to have the authority to condemn angels, but these are really powers that they don't even have the ability to understand. Yet in their foolish self-exaltation, and they're touting themselves as these authorities, they actually led to their demise because they enslaved themselves to their own lustful desires. Things that they should have understood instinctively. So they proved, rather rather than proving themselves to be experts in spiritual knowledge, they showed that they were no better than unreasoning animals. So it's, it's really ironic here. And then Jude contrasts these false teachers with a positive example of Michael. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that this account of Michael is not in it. So Jude sometimes uses pretty interesting sources. So where did it come from? It more than likely came from a source called the Assumption of Moses. And this was uh, a work that tried to explain what happened to Moses after the Israelites entered the Promised Land. What happens when he died? And and the story goes that that Moses died, and the devil came to try to uh, argue that, that Moses was not righteous because he had killed one of the Egyptians. And therefore the devil had claim to his body. And so Michael is there, and he's disputing with the devil because he's saying that, that Moses is righteous while the devil's kind of arguing about. But um, <clears throat> but that regardless, it appears that Jude considers this a historical account. But that doesn't mean that it's scripture, right? Just because you believe something to be a historical account doesn't mean that it's, it's the word of God. Okay? Instead, he uses it to make a point. Because in the Old Testament, the only person who contends with demonic powers, the only person who condemns demonic powers was God. That was it. And so this is just a story where someone who is a spiritual authority stands against some demonic power. In this case, it's Michael and Satan. And so he has to look outside the Bible because it's even unheard of in Scripture other than Christ, New Testament, but not in Old Testament, that someone would stand against demonic powers and and blaspheme judgment against them. So that's more than likely what he's doing here. And Michael, you know, though he's an archangel, he, he has extreme authority. I mean, as far as spiritual beings go that we know of in the Old Testament, I mean, there's God. And then there's way, 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 way down here. But number two is kind of, is, is Michael. But yet Michael serves as an example of humility in that even though he had all this authority, he had all this power, he was at least equal to, if not greater than Satan himself. He didn't dare to pronounce judgment against Satan. Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. He submitted to the lordship of God in judgment. 
And why, why is this important? It's important to recognize that no one is a law unto themselves. Only God is the moral authority, and only He can pronounce condemnation against those who deserve it. That is reserved for God alone. Now this, this doesn't mean that we don't discern and warn. This doesn't mean that we don't make decisions to protect the doctrine of the church or the purity of the church or to protect those who can't protect themselves. Because there's a difference between making judgments and making judgments of condemnation. Is there not? I mean, if there wasn't, why is Jude even writing this letter appealing to us to contend for the faith? Reality is we do have to discern. We do have to warn. We do have to, if necessary, remove those who are false believers from fellowship. But we recognize that God alone will judge them. And this leads to the second point, that the ungodly can be identified by their character, attitudes, words, and actions. Let's read verses 11 through 13. Jude says, Woe to them! For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of being to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The reality is, a person's life reflects the person's heart. The heart is the well from which thoughts, words, and deeds spring. And Jude's point in 11 through 13 is that attitudes and actions, words and deeds, reflect the true nature of these teachers. And once again, we see a pattern here that Jude cites three Old Testament examples to illustrate the ungodly character of these false teachers. First, they walked in the way of Cain. That is, that they have walked in the path of evil. It doesn't mean that they were murderers, but that they acted without faith. Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11 speak of Cain's irreverence towards God. 1 John 3 says that Cain murdered Abel because his own deeds were evil, while his brothers, Abel's, were righteous. Cain's irreverent, evil attitudes were then shared by his children. By his character, though he may have never openly professed it, was caught by his children, and they followed in his ways. In the same way, these false teachers exemplified evil, irreverence towards God. Balaam, Balaam was a prophet who spoke for financial gain. And like Balaam, these teachers were willing to tickle the ears of paying listeners. They would use their teaching as a means of gain, but they bought into the own, their own pleasantness of their message, and they plunged into their own error. And I think that this should be a warning to all of us. When we click on the TV and we see the self-proclaimed prophet, Chances are this guy, if he's asking for money, that he's probably a heretic. And then the third example, Korah was a priest who rebelled against Moses, who was God's established authority. Like Korah, these false teachers spoke against God's authority. 
And in their rebellion, they too will perish. Then Jude gives five, five examples of the ungodly from nature. He says that they're hidden feasts, or hidden reefs at your love feast. Now, love feast is the early church potluck. They would, they would get together, they'd participate in a meal together, and then they would share in the Lord's Supper. And Jude calls them hidden reefs because they're, one, they're hard to identify, but two, they're extremely dangerous. As a ship would, would coast through the water, if it didn't see the reef, it would hit it and be destroyed. These ungodly, in the same way, they destroy the fellowship of the church, and they cause Christians to eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And then he gives reason why they're so dangerous. Because they're irreverent towards God. They feast without fear of God's just retribution. They look only to themselves. They are selfish. The word he uses here describes the work of a shepherd who is to care for his flocks. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. Now these false teachers, they wanted to be shepherds. They wanted to claim themselves as spiritual leaders of God's flock. But the reality was, they were only shepherding themselves. They were only feeding themselves. And so, they are guilty of God's judgment in Ezekiel 34. In verse 10, God says, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall they be shepherds feeding themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Jude calls them waterless clouds. Like a big cloud that looks like it's full of rain. It promises the hope of, of water to come and to, to, to quench the thirst of the dry lands. But they blow right overhead, never dropping anything. These false teachers, they promise what they can't really deliver. And again, I think Jude is, is alluding back to the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, 14. It says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Jude says that they're trees without fruit and that they're already judged. They are waves which well up filth to their shame. And what he's describing here is that when the waves are crashing down in a certain way, they, they produce a foam that's really grimy and it coats the beach and it leaves the sticky residue of shame behind. And again, Isaiah 57.20, I think he's alluding to it here. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for they cannot be quiet. And the waters toss up mire and dirt. And then Jude calls them wandering stars. And I think a better translation is actually wandering planets. Because in the New Testament times, as people understood the course of the heavens, the planets, because of their different motion, uh, around the sun proved to be unreliable guides. They seemed to just kind of wander throughout the heavens. And so they were ineffective guides for those who wanted to know their position before God. And so too are these false teachers. They have erred, they've led many astray, and they're destined to be lost in oblivion. And so Jude's point is that the character, words, and actions of these people reveal their ungodliness. And so what does he say to them? He says, woe to them. Woe to them! How terrible will this judgment be against you if you continue down this path? This is an intense expression of pain, of anguish, and of displeasure. God's just judgment is reason to lament. So watch out! Repent! Turn from your ways before they destroy you! 
That's what Judah's saying here. He says, woe to the ungodly. Because, number three, the most dreadful punishment awaits them. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh, harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You think that he's trying to make a point here? These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In verses 14 through 15, again, Jude quotes a very interesting source. This is the book of First Enoch. It is, it is what scholars say a pseudepigraphical book. It was written under a pseudonym. Somebody who wrote it claimed to be somebody else. So the writer claimed to be Enoch. Okay? Now this book, by the way, it's not part of the Apocrypha, that part of literature that was written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament that is found in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Bibles. This is not part of that. Um, this was a part of writing that was they started showing up around the time of the apostles and really gained popularity at, immediately after the apostles in certain areas throughout the world. Um, but it was never, ever part of the Christian canon. It was never suggested to be part of the Christian canon. Um, but Jude, again, he's not claiming that it be considered scripture. He doesn't say, it is written. You see... First Enoch actually gives an account of the fall of the angels. I mean, the big book of, of this letter addresses the watchers who rebelled against God, God and were cast down to earth. And so, it's, per, it's possible that Jude is quoting it because the false teachers um, were using it to support their claim to blaspheme the glorious ones, like in verse 8. So they're using this as a reason to condemn the angels. And Jude might just be using their own tools against them. So yeah, well, it talks about the condemnation of angels, but it, it talks about the condemnation of ungodliness. And there you are. Um, so, but, but it's also important to recognize, too, that the truth that Jude affirms from this passage, the point that he's trying to emphasize, could have been supported by dozens of passages in the Old Testament. Okay? And that is that God will execute judgment on all ungodliness. There will be a day of universal judgment in which every soul will have to give an account to God. And God will condemn the ungodly. Here, Jude is emphatic. He says that those who live irreverently, who live without regard for God and His ways, will be found guilty. Those who teach godless, impious doctrines, either by word or by example, will be doomed. And then, just to make sure that we know who the ungodly are, in verse 16, he gives further description of the ungodly. He says they're grumblers, they're malcontents. Now these words go together, like they're grumbling malcontents or they're malcontent grumblers. It's one's an adjective or the other. They're, they're dissatisfied souls who continually point out fault. They're discontent. 
They, crum- they grumble and argue against God's good provision. It says they follow their own sinful desires. They're slaves to sin who seek to satisfy themselves in anything rather than God. They're loudmouth boasters. They proudly and arrogantly speak in order to glorify themselves. They show favoritism to gain advantage. They show partiality as a means of gain. They flatter in order to stuff their own wallets. And then in verse 19, he says that these false teachers cause divisions. They're worldly, devoid of the Spirit. They claim to be spiritual authorities, but in reality, they're not even truly believers. They do not have the Spirit of God. These ungodly, these are the ungodly who will face condemnation. And then throughout his letter, Jude paints a frightening picture of this awaiting judgment. In verse 4, he says that the ungodly were long ago designated for this condemnation. In verse 5, he describes it as destruction. In verse 6, we are given the image of being bound in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Verse 7 depicts it as punishment of eternal fire. Verse 10 again says that the ungodly are destroyed. Verse 11 portrays it as abandonment and perishing. Verse 13 describes the punishment in saying that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for those forever. And then in 15 he expresses the universal nature of this judgment and conviction. This imagery is dire. What a horrible, horrible punishment. So woe to the ungodly. Woe to them. This ought to be uncomfortable to us. This ought to be upsetting. It's meant to be upsetting. It's meant to be uncomfortable. But, but, it's also God's grace towards us. Did you realize that? When God provides a warning, it is an act of grace. Because the reality is, all of us deserve this. Every single one of us in the room deserves this. So if you happen to be sitting here and you're saying, this doesn't apply to me, you know? I'm, I'm no false teacher. I haven't denied Christ. Then you miss the point. You may not be claiming to be a spiritual authority, but are you truly submitting yourselves to Christ? Really? You may not be preaching to lead others astray, but are your children carrying out the worldly practices that you carry out? Do you see your sin in them? Do you see your sin magnified in them? Are are your friends feeding off of your divisive, malcontent attitude? Now, you may not be convincing others to practice immorality, but how's your heart? What is your thought life like? Would you truly consider yourself to be faithful, humble, and holy? Holy? Pure, blameless? Is your life truly a profession what you believe. 
See, apart from Christ, we're all ungodly. Therefore, this message is for us. It's for us. Not a message of doom, but a message of mercy. Do you realize that God warns us, uh, when he warns us, he gives us an opportunity to respond to him. God warns us, he gives warnings to his church as a means of helping them persevere in the faith. This message actually proves that God is gracious. He, was, he doesn't have to warn us. He could just condemn us right now in our sin. He could strike us dead. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect example of that. But it serves as a warning to us so that we might, in God's kindness, turn and respond in faith. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So God is calling us to respond to His grace. You know, grace is not amazing unless you realize how much you truly need it. How much you truly need salvation. Not from hell, not just from the wrath of God, but from our sin, from ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. So we've been given this opportunity to respond to God by turning from our sin and following following our perfect Savior who died on the cross as a punishment for our sin, for yours, and for mine, and who was raised to life again so that we might have hope of a new life in Him. This is the warning that, that Jude gives to us. He gives to His church. The ungodly hate it. They hate it because they want to continue in their unbelief, in their pride, and in their immorality. But the godly, the godly, they see it as God's mercy. And they respond in repentance. They respond to His grace by growing in faith, humility, and holiness. So, the question is, which one are you? Which one do you want to be? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we, we admit that this message is uncomfortable, that we don't like thinking about there's a possibility that we could be judged for our sin, that we have this tendency to minimize it. Oh, it's not really that bad. But that's only because we don't realize how holy you are, God. We confess that we do not see you as we ought to see you. That you are perfect in your blamelessness, in your purity, in your righteousness, in your justice as you judge, in your goodness. And so God, we, we admit, we don't deserve this warning. We don't deserve to know the outcome that our sin leads us down. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for your kindness, which is meant to lead us to repentance. So God, I pray for the hearts of all of us here today that we will not desire to remain in our sin, 
the sin of unbelief, of immorality, of pride, but rather, in humility, we would respond with broken and contrite hearts, that we would be humbled, that we would grow increasingly in faith and in holiness. Because you have called us to be holy as you are holy. And we thank you for Christ, who you sent to be our holiness and our righteousness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who you sent to all believers, that we might be able to stand, to grow in new life, that we might be able to put our sin to death, and that we might truly, truly be able to grow in holiness. And so I pray, God, that we want it. I pray, God, that we earnestly and honestly look at ourselves and we say, Woe is me. I am undone. And may we receive and rest in the only perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.